Kay, and welcome to Casualties of History, a podcast where we make our way through E.P. Thompson's The Making of the English Working Class, one chapter at a time. Um, This week's episode is chapters one and two. Last week's was the preface. Um, We have a couple logistical things at the top of the show. The first is that we have a Slack channel. So if you subscribe on Patreon, that's patreon.com backslash casualties of history. You can get added to the Slack and people are discussing the book and other readings in there um, because we want this to be as much a book club as a podcast and we want people to read along. Um, So we're in there throughout the week talking about the book and about anything related to um, the readings. Thanks, Alex. Uh, I also would just like to take a moment to correct a couple of errors that I made off the cuff last week. Um, First of all, I said that the phrase Luddite cropper refers to an agricultural worker thinking that that's what Cropper meant. I should have known better. Luddites were, of course, smashing industrial machinery. Um, and the phrase, the word Cropper refers to a kind of textile worker. Second, I said that Thompson did not fight in World War II when I was describing his biography, but his brother did. That also was incorrect. Thompson uh, was a tank commander in Italy. So I'll just you know continue to correct myself as I inevitably make more mistakes over the course of the podcast. But uh, I want to hold myself to a high standard. Uh, so today, we are very pleased to have with us as a guest, uh, Dr. Rachel Foxley, who teaches at University of Reading in England, and is the author of The Levelers from Manchester University Press, subtitle Radical Political Thought in the English Revolution. Uh, welcome, Dr. Foxley. It's great to be here. Thank you for asking me. It's great to have you. Uh, so uh, given how much chapter one and two, both of the book, draw on the background of uh social and political upheaval in the 17th century and their lasting consequences. We we're hoping you could just start out by telling us what was the English Revolution and what forms of radicalism did it give rise to? Yes, of course. The English Revolution obviously has a really well-known background in the rule of Charles I over his three kingdoms of England, Scotland and Ireland. And the background to the English Revolution is often told as this very uh, perhaps narrowly political story of how Charles had problems with his parliaments in the later 1620s. He then decided to rule without a parliament in England from 1629 to 1640. And then when he was finally forced to call a parliament in England in 1640, in fact, two parliaments in the space of one year, uh, the second that he called the long parliament, as it ended up being, actually resisted aspects of his rule by first of all, trying to gain concessions from him, which they did with some success, but then eventually ended up fighting two civil wars against him in the 1640s. So there's that political background. There's the religious background that Charles and his bishops were pushing the church in a direction which was more high church, which felt to the more zealous Protestants, the Puritans, as if he was taking them back towards the Roman Catholic Church. And that really had fused with those political anxieties about the direction of Charles's rule and the the way that he was choosing to rule um, in the 1620s into the 1630s and the early 1640s. So that I think there was a, a group of people, perhaps a very small group of people, who had a very, very strong view that there was a kind of joint 
political and religious tyranny and absolutism emerging from Charles's regime. And I think then conversely, there were people within Charles's regime who, who had a, an equal but opposite view that they were very dangerous Puritan revolutionary radicals who were trying to and um, would take any opportunity to overthrow his regime. And I think at the point that the people had formulated these ideas, they were very overblown ideas, but it was that already quite deep polarisation of strongly politicised people, which was there and led to the Civil War when it started in the 1640s. But I think it's the things that happen after 1640 that then justify that really being called a revolution, the ways that it developed through the 1640s. So can you tell us a little bit more then about uh, the ongoing spread of radicalization, which it sounds like is what you're what you're alluding to. Absolutely. So the 1640s, the Civil War period, led to changes in political culture. It forced people on both sides, the parliamentarians and the royalists, in fighting civil wars. It forced them to appeal to a broader public, to try and politically mobilise a broader public. There were various uh, new means for doing so. There were news books, the first weekly newspapers that appeared um, that were actually dealing with domestic news for the first time in the 1640s. And there's a flood of pamphleteering and also petitioning that went along with that as well. So there were ways that people could actually engage in politics that were really new and enabled widespread mobilisation. And of course, the context of London and the context of the New Model Army are key contexts where this happens, where there are a lot of people who are receptive to these kind of ideas and who can be mobilised. And of course, in the case of the army, uh, people who want to actually secure a real change in the direction of events can hope that they actually can get the army mo moving in their direction or that they can secure mutiny in the army. So within the parliamentarian side of the civil wars that went on in the 1640s, there's, there's a lot of scope for radicalisation. It also comes from sectarian congregations which spring up in the 1640s. People, uh, zealous Puritans, but people who to a certain extent move beyond Puritanism and form various gathered congregations uh, in the 1640s. They're also a really interesting site of radical political as well as religious ideas emerging um, from those groups. And the levellers, uh, who were a political group who emerged from that most radical end of the parliamentarian coalition, which was a very fractious coalition, they have deep roots in the sectarian congregations and they mobilise people in London and people in the army with quite radical political ideas. Uh, so can you just tell us a few of what those congregations were on the radical end? The Quakers are one that I think Americans may be a little bit familiar mm -hmm. with, although we probably don't have a sense of their what they were like in the 1640s. And, be, and then beyond the Quakers, I think many of them are, will be quite strange to our listeners. Mm. Yes. So I think what you get in the 1640s is a kind of relatively slow burning start of all of this. And then some of these groups become more distinct um, and, and gain the, the labels that you've alluded to as you go into, as you go past the execution of Charles I in 1649 and into the 1650s. So to a certain extent, we're leaping ahead, but, but let's cover this now, um, because what you get is a fragmentation of that radical end of, of zealous Protestantism in the 1640s, um, particularly congregation setting up of Baptists. So people who believe on principle that child baptism is illegitimate that you have to be baptised as an adult believer into these select congregations who presumably believe that they are the elect. 
Um, and those could be strictly Calvinist Baptists. John Lilburn, the level of leader, was at the outset of his career a strictly Calvinist Baptist. He believed in predestination. Um, but there were also general Baptists who believe in potentially universal salvation. Um, so that introduces a whole different set of ideas, which I think is quite interesting. And it's an example of what I mean by people going beyond Puritanism, beyond that Calvinist version of zealous Protestantism to something that could be much more radical, but also much more inclusive if you believe that everyone can potentially be saved. But then as you go on um, past the regicide into the 1650s, you get further groups splitting off and developing um, who gain these interesting nicknames. So the Quakers are one of the most successful groups in the 1650s, gain um, thousands of followers in the 1650s. Very much, again, people who've pushed beyond Puritanism, well beyond Calvinism, um, who are promoting a kind of mystical form of Christianity, perhaps with some kind of promise of universal salvation within it, but rejecting all ceremony. Anti-formalism is a, is a really important part of the radical religious impulse in the English Revolution. So they're rejecting any kind of ceremony or form or ritual, any kind of uh, priesthood or teachers who are above anyone else. Um, and, and those impulses are common to various radical religious groups in the English Revolution. Um, you get groups who also have a political aspect. The Diggers are another of those nicknamed groups, if you like, but they're actually also uh, grounded in much the same kind of religious ideas, rejecting ceremony, rejecting hierarchy, rejecting the idea that you need a teacher outside yourself because you have the spirit rising up within you, which is very much the Quaker idea as well. Um, and then very famously, and the cause of much uh, panic at the time and much focused by historians since you have a group known as the Ranters, perhaps quite a loose network of people, but people who definitely did know each other, um, who again are expressing very radical antinomian religious ideas, believe, believing that if you are pure, you don't need to abide by the law. You can almost prove your purity by committing things, uh, sins such as fornication, uh, by swearing, by doing things that, that somehow set you apart um, because those outward laws no longer apply to you. But also within the ranters, you get a strong kind of impulse of, um, of social and economic radicalism, again, an egalitarianism that runs through a lot of these radical religious movements as well. Um, they caused a lot of outrage at the time from a relatively small number of pamphlets, but we do think they existed. We do think there were a group of people who were talking to each other and who had these... Uh, who were putting out these kind of antinomian views. And there's a phenomenon that Thompson refers to uh, as field preaching, uh, which I, I can sort of guess what, what that means from, from the words, but could you just tell us what, what it is about that that was so provocative? I suppose right through the 1640s and 1650s, there's this question of who has the authority to actually um, to actually teach religiously, and you get the increase of lay preaching. This is something that had started... Uh, before then, there are, there are Puritans who are lay preachers before uh, the English Revolution. But it certainly takes off much more in the 1640s. And then some of these radical religious groups in the 1650s are, are going around and preaching to people in all sorts of places, in, including in taverns. Uh, but yes, also potentially uh, preaching outdoors. And particularly, people like the Quakers rejected 
um, the steeple houses rejected the churches. They would sometimes burst into churches and interrupt sermons. So, so along with rejecting the institutions of the church, they're rejecting the buildings as well, and a much more fluid form of, uh, uh, of preaching to people, I think, is happening. So you've mentioned the levelers and the diggers and a few of the other radical groups. Have, can you talk about the substance of their ideas? So they're radically egalitarian in certain ways, but what does that mean in the context? Yes, so the levelers are largely a political group. If you look at the lists of their demands, their demands are quite um, clearly articulated that they want the country to be governed by a representative uh, that is going to be elected by certainly a much larger electorate than was currently in place. We can talk about exactly how wide or how inclusive that that would have been. Um, They believe that there is no political power apart from the power that comes from the people and is exercised by the consent of the people. And so their rhetoric is very egalitarian and inclusive in that sense. Um, There's the famous uh, extract from the Putney debates that uh, that Thompson quotes from in chapter one, where Rainborough says that the poorest he uh, that lives has a has a life to live and therefore should be able to exercise his vote. And that's something that actually echoes things that John Lilburn, the civilian leveller leader, had already said uh, about the poorest that lives has to give his consent to government and can't be governed without his own consent. And so they work that out by then saying that essentially uh, you certainly don't need a monarchy. A monarchy is probably mischievous, dangerous, unhelpful, um, and when they put together constitutional uh, blueprints, the monarchy simply doesn't appear, and it's made absolutely clear that there's no monarchical veto on legislation, and the same goes for the House of Lords. So presumably, they ideally would have liked to abolish the monarchy and the House of Lords completely. They want annual parliamentary elections, so the country would be ruled by an annual representative, Annual elections are obviously a very radical demand that has to do with thinking about corruption, accountability, representation, um, a demand that famously was one of the Chartists' demands and the only one that was never actually has never actually come to pass. So that was something that the Levellers were pushing. Alongside that political side, they were also interested in law reform. They felt that the law was expensive, exclusive, uh, along with a lot of other radicals at the time. This was a common theme at the time. The levellers, of course, had quite a lot to do with the law. They were quite frequently imprisoned and therefore they developed quite strong views from their own experiences. Um, And they also strongly believed in liberty of religious conscience. So going along with the idea that you could actually decide uh, for yourself in terms of politics, you could also follow your own religious conscience. And that was, even though the levellers themselves had slightly different religious backgrounds, that was a a common plank uh, that held that movement together. You referred a moment ago to the Putney debate, uh, which which Thompson does kind of allude to, but in a way that I think he expects his reader will know what it is. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about about what the Putney debate was and um, in general, some of the kind of leveler political strategy that it formed a part of? Yes. I mean, this is actually quite exactly how you interpret the place of the Putney debates within the history of the leveller movement is actually quite controversial among historians, but we can skip some of the some of the infighting among historians. Um, essentially, the Putney debates were debates which happened within the New Model Army, the General Council of the, the Parliamentarian Army, in October and November of 1647. 
1647 was an absolutely momentous year in which uh, Parliament, having won the First Civil War, had tried to disband the army, partly because the army would have, hung, pulled out, would have held out for a more radical version of settlement than Parliament at that time wanted. The army resisted disbandment. Um, they kind of made a pledge to each other, and the officers came in with the, the rank and file on this. They pledged that they were going to resist disbandment until certain conditions were met. And so effectively, the whole army, including the army leadership, was kind of in mutiny against Parliament and had actually already occupied London earlier in the summer of 1647 because they didn't like the almost counter-revolutionary tone of what was going on in Parliament. So the army itself became directly involved in discussions about what the settlement of the nation should be after the Civil War. And those were controversial discussions because, as I've already said, the parliamentarian coalition was very fractured and people were tending in different directions. The army had actually also seized control of the king himself and had taken him away to negotiate with him directly. But then within the army, uh, rank and file and junior officers had taken a place within this cre newly created council, the general council of the army, alongside more senior officers to debate what they were trying to achieve. And so these debates in October, November 1647 at Putney were about what kind of settlement the army as a whole was going to hold out for, but in the context where the army leadership had been negotiating with the king and some of the more radical people within the army were increasingly distrustful of the direction the army leadership were going in. And the radicals had drawn up a couple of position documents that they took into this debate and the Putney debates. Um, the case of the army truly stated, and then a famous document called the First Agreement of the People. And the case of the army said that every man over the age of 21 should have a vote. Uh, the agreement of the people was not quite as explicit as that, but, but it strongly implied that. And these statements led to a big debate, which we luckily have recorded verbatim. It's an amazing record. Um, on one day of these debates, a debate between the army leadership who are insisting that the franchise should still be based on property uh, and the radicals within the army, officers, and also a couple of civilian participants in those debates um, who are trying to break that link between property and the franchise in the way that's referred to in the extracts um, that, Thompson, that Thompson uses in chapter one. So it's a very passionate debate. The main speaker for the army leadership is not Cromwell, but Ayrton, Cromwell's son-in-law, and he makes a passionate argument that, that although the franchise could be expanded, it does still have to depend on property. Otherwise, you will get people in charge who will overthrow property completely. And the army men are responding with these arguments about consent, about the fact that you cannot be put under a government unless you've consented to that government. And they're also using an argument that I think comes from things that John Lilburn, the civilian leveller leader, had been writing, um, where they say that they have a right to vote just by, by the right of freeborn Englishmen. And this is a phrase that, that comes up constantly in Lilburn's writing. Ayrton says, if you don't have property, you might as well go to another country. You have nothing tying you to England. They say, no, we do. We have a whole set of rights and liberties that we have as Englishmen. And this is Lilburn's idea of the freeborn Englishman. Where does that idea of the freeborn Englishman come from? 
I'm not quite sure. I think it's partly something, I think it's something that Lilburn actually forges himself because a lot of the opposition to Charles I, people's making speeches in Parliament in the 1620s would refer to freeborn subjects. That was the normal phrase. And it's Lilburn who turns that consistently into the phrase freeborn Englishman, which obviously then became a resonant phrase and a catchphrase that was used um, later on, not just uh, during the course of the Leveller movement. But I think that's very much Lilburn's own creation. And he's referring partly to what he sees as um, the protections and rights that are there within some kind of ancient constitution constituted by the common law tradition. So he has these kind of perhaps romantic, backward-looking idea of, of an ideal ancient constitution, which he ties in with ideas of natural rights as well. So the two sides fuse, and he, he sometimes talks about these rights as being natural and national liberties. So he ties the two things together. And you mentioned we could talk about how inclusive or not and egalitarian and universal the levelers sort of idea of suffrage was. Can we get into that a little bit? Yes, I mean, there's a certain amount of debate about it, partly because it's not always, um, it's not consistent across leveler documents. And in the Putney debates themselves, some of the speakers on the radical side make some concessions in the course of the debates. Uh, and it became a big source of argument among historians, partly because um, C.B. McPherson, in his book about possessive individualism, identified the levellers as possessive individualists. The levellers haven't always been particularly in favour with left-wing historians who have seen them as quite narrowly political in their interests. And this was an example of that kind of interpretation of the levellers. So he regarded them as possessive individualists. He argued that the exclusions that they made at Putney, where they said that they would be prepared to accept a franchise that excluded servants um, and also anyone in receipt of, of arms, um, he suggested that that excluded the, the entire labouring population. Anyone who laboured for wages was excluded by that. Um, that's pretty much universally rejected by historians since then. But there's still a debate about exactly how prepared to make con con concessions on that the levellers were, and a debate about whether they fundamentally were interested in statuses such as household head status, or statuses such as being a free man of a company in a London context, which uh, was a cause that they championed. Um, the government of the city of London itself and the way that the City of London chose its MPs was related to the whole structure of, uh, of the companies uh, in London. And if you had served your apprenticeship and become a free man of a company, then you had a role in some of these processes, but were excluded from a lot of the higher level processes. And the levellers um, were involved in uh, attempts to try and democratise the government of London to include all of the free men. But the free men of London are still an exclusive category and it has been argued by some historians that it's that kind of status of person who the levellers are really interested in enfranchising. However, I think a lot of the language actually tends in a more inclusive direction than that. Uh, when someone like Lilburn talks about the poorest that lives, when someone like Rainsborough talks about the poorest he, that's clearly pushing in a more inclusive direction. And the levellers also use language that doesn't have a kind of technical limited meaning. They talk about freeborn Englishmen which clearly was meant to mean everyone or everyone who hadn't in some way forfeited their birthright. Um, and they talk about free men of England, and that's not a restrictive status. It's kind of taking that language of free men, but applying it in a more universal way. So I think there is some scope for 
I mean, they were certainly inspired by the London context. They certainly were interested in uh, the London context. But I think their rhetoric actually pushes in a more inclusive direction than, than just people of that certain status uh, as people they wanted to enfranchise. And they end up saying, again, something on the long lines of all adult men over the age of 21. But they are prepared to exclude servants. On the other hand, you have to remember that as being a servant was a life cycle status in this period. Most people would have been servants, but at a particular phase in their teens and early 20s, and then would become, uh, would set up their own households after that. So that status of dependence of being a servant was possibly time limited for most people. And then on the left of the levelers, if I'm sort of interpreting that correctly, were the diggers, is that right? Uh, who presented themselves as the true levelers? Yes. Um, that, that phrase, the true levelers, comes from a pamphlet called the True Levelers Standard Advance. It's clearly picking up on the fact that the group we call the levelers, um, who never accepted that label themselves really, um, had been accused of being levelers, had been accused of wanting to level property, but had actually denied that. Uh, the closest they got to admitting any interest in that was saying that um, it would need universal consent for it to happen, that it wasn't something that, that could happen without the consent uh, of the people holding the land. So, and in fact, in the final agreement of the people, they made it um, illegal to, uh, to try and redistribute land or to abolish property in that way. So the diggers, when they appeared um, just after the regicide, they clearly picked that up in putting out a pamphlet called the True Levelers Standard Advanced. They probably are not calling themselves true levelers. They're, calling, they're saying that Christ is the true leveler. Um, but they're certainly contrasting their view of what should happen with the levellers' defensiveness about this issue of private property. And the diggers, led by Gerard Winstanley, are a fascinating group. Winstanley had written a series of mystical Christian pamphlets um, in which he uses biblical language in increasingly creative ways that are very hard to, to pin down to specific meanings. And that language then carries across into the series of very practical uh, works that he then writes as he sets up a community which is going to work common land uh, and try and take back the land as, as he, what he calls a common treasury for all. And his theory, although he doesn't attack privately owned land and although they, they go and settle on what is already common land, his theory is that if they can attract enough people to come and join them, the whole system through which private landowners hold their land will be undermined because there will be no one to work their land for them. So he is explicitly aiming to bring about the end of the system of private property, even though he quite cannily starts the process by setting up uh, a communal society on, on land that is already common land rather than privately owned land. And what's the fate of the diggers? They come into a certain amount of conflict with the local communities, um, also with the army, with the local clergyman, and they're chased off uh, two different sites. So they don't last very long in either of the two sites in Surrey that they colonised. They do manage to spawn some um, sister colonies or daughter colonies in other places, which are also presumably quite short-lived. I don't think they attracted the kind of concerted hostility uh, of the authorities that you might expect, partly just because they weren't a big enough threat. They were a fairly minor um, group doing their own thing. And they did have some support from the local community. Many of the people who initially joined that colony were from the local community. Um, 
But there was hostility partly from local landowning interests, but also from others who felt that actually they had taken over common land that the local community wanted to use. So there's a conflict over those traditional rights as well in the way that they've taken over that common land. So yes, they come to an unfortunate end having scraped very hard at very poor land to try and sustain themselves. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us more about the experience of defeat more broadly for the revolution? Well, for the levelers, it's a, it's a fairly stark experience. I think it's leveler ideas that underpin the trial and execution of the king in 1649, when that's brought about effectively by a military coup. But the levelers opposed that. Uh, the results of the of the revolution, they started publishing tracts against it. Um, Lilburn published two tracts under the title England's New Chains Discovered, which shows what he thought of uh, the regime that came about after the execution of the king, because, of course, the new regime did not implement the agreement of the people. They just hobbled on with a purged parliament running the country. Um, that led to a mutiny in the army, supporting leveller principles being put down famously at Burford in 1649. It led to Lilburn himself famously being put on trial in the autumn of 1649, um, the authorities made the mistake of giving him a jury and he managed to persuade the jury that they were judges of law as well as fact um, and appealed to their consciences and secured an acquittal, um, which was a sign that there was a reservoir of level of support that was still very much there after the revolution. You see that again in 1653 at the point when you get the transition from the Republic to the Protectorate of Oliver Cromwell. You do get a little burst of leveller ideas coming through then. Um, and again in 1659, when there's another period of instability before the restoration of Charles II. But then obviously when the restoration of Charles II happens in 1660, I think there are radicals who, who don't think it's a done deal, who think that God is punishing them for not using the opportunities that they'd had in the 1650s well enough. Um, you get that that kind of view that it's that they're going to have to have another turn in the wilderness before they can then before they can then come back. But you also get some of the radical energies of the revolution being channeled into um, from the time of the exclusion crisis onwards, certainly into into more Whig politics and radical Whig politics. So you do get uh, a continuation of conspiracy and activity going on. Uh, in the restoration period. I don't think people completely give up. And I think the polarizations in politics that, and in religion that the revolution generated certainly don't die away. The, the story Thompson tells about the 18th century is one in which those energies have gone dormant, but still kind of manifest in various indirect ways such that they can be reawoken. How would you kind of end the narrative of the period we've been talking about and, and set up what's to come in the 18th century? I suppose we have to mention the Glorious Revolution, the extent to which there was a second revolution, not such a popular one, but certainly not totally devoid of some of the energies of what had happened earlier in the century. Um, again, some of the ways of doing politics that had happened earlier in the 17th century didn't disappear. You have the exclusion crisis with massive crowd involvement and petitioning activity as part of that. The Glorious Revolution, when it happens, perhaps doesn't bring about um, really decisive constitutional change, but in practice it brings about a change to a much more parliament-focused style of government. But from the point of view of what Thompson goes on to talk about in Chapter 2, perhaps more important is the Toleration Act that ensues, and the fact that these radical 
Protestant minorities that had, some of which had survived the Restoration, particularly Quakers and Baptists, who'd survived the Restoration period. They now are able to exist without persecution in religious terms, but they're still excluded from universities, they're still excluded from office. And so, although they have a lively culture of their own, they set up their own academies, um, the problem is not entirely solved, and they're certainly somewhere where interesting uh, thought is likely to happen that is in contrast to the orthodoxies uh, of the Anglican authorities. I was thinking, uh, talking to you and reading this material in Thompson about the line of the great sociologist Barrington Moore, a very old book now, uh, on the English Revolution, which he describes as, or his phrase is, the contributions of violence to gradualism, right? that England is always held up as an example of the great liberal society, where there's uh, sort of a form of universal civil rights, and you know there has there's not a great uh, history of in recent times of social upheaval as there has been in France and Germany and Russia and even the United States. And the point of his chapter on England in uh, social origins of dictatorship and democracy is that that's because the English experience of transition began so extraordinarily violently. And I was I was struck in in rereading the Thompson at how much the sense of a kind of huge, quite partially, but still remembered trauma hangs over English history uh, for an enormously long period of time, right? Such that its touch points remain quite meaningful into the 1770s, 1780s, 1790s, uh, you know, 150 years afterward. And I'm curious what you, what you make of that, if that, if you would agree with that account or disagree with it or gloss it in some other way. Mm. I think the English Revolution definitely has this kind of ratcheting effect that although it creates a reaction against it, it also creates ideas and energies that, that are not um, not able to be shut up or, or returned. The clock is no, not able to be turned back at the point of the Restoration. Um, and so I think, as you say, it's, it's something to do with the fact that this happened very early in English history that has enabled the rather more complacent story to be told after that about, about the way that English history works. Clearly the English Revolution acted as a, as a horror story for some people afterwards. It acts as a, as a continuing reason why you should resist any of these progressive forces, but it clearly also does act to some extent as a touch point for people. And then to the extent that some of the outcomes of the English Revolution of the mid-century can be packed away and attributed to a perhaps more comfortable revolution of the glorious revolution at the end of the century, um, those things can be avowed a bit more enthusiastically than people are prepared to avow the violence of the English revolution itself. I don't have any other questions. Alex, do you? Yeah, no, I, that was really great. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it's really, really great. No, thank you. That was really interesting to do. All right. Thanks, Rachel. Great. Thanks. Bye. 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 Nice. That was good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, should we just jump into? Yeah. Chapters one and two. Well, let's start with one. We should start with order. one, I would say. <laughs> let's see. Let me get my book. So chapter one, that the number of our members be unlimited as it starts. Yes. What does that mean? It's a good question. That's one of the questions I actually have for you. I'm curious um, because unlimited uh, you know, raises something that we're going to talk about throughout this whole experience. But the question of 
empire and race. Um, I mean, um, Professor Foxley just touched on this with servants um, not being included, which was not about race or empire necessarily, but about status. And gender. I mean, and gender. domestic servants are by far the largest class of employment in this period, and that's gendered employment. Yeah. But so my first question, as someone who's not as familiar with the London Corresponding Society, is just what did this actually entail? Well, you know, I think it's a good question uh, that there's a couple different ways of answering, you know, at, at some level. And I think this is the point Thompson wants to make. Um, it's an appearance of a kind of working class universalism that we're, we will associate with later moments in history. And that's why he's enthusiastic about it, obviously. Right, right. He says it's sort of the first working class organization, that, at least in certain respects. Yeah, let's uh, talk about his discussion of that a little bit on okay, on page sure. 17. So I don't know if everyone's listening, everyone will have different editions. I don't know if the uh, pagination is the same. I have the version uh, from Vintage that has the red and yellow uh, working man with only half a face holding a pail of some kind. So mm-hmm. when I quote a page number, that's what it's from. Hopefully those are the same page numbers that everyone will have. Who knows? Anyway, uh, on page 17, excuse me, sorry, page 21, Uh, Thompson says this, a new kind of organization had come into being with features which help us to define in the context of 1790 to 1850, the nature of a working class organization. There is the working man as secretary. There is the low weekly subscription. There is the intermingling of economic and political themes, the hardness of the times and parliamentary reform. There is the function of the meeting, both as a social occasion and as a center for political activity. There is the realistic attention to procedural formalities. Above all, there is the determination to propagate opinions and to organize the converted, embodied in the leading rule that the number of our members be unlimited. So Thompson is certainly, certainly wants to attribute to this uh, impulse in the London Corresponding Society a kind of uh, universalist politics. Mm-hmm. What are you suggesting in terms of the limits of that that you see? Well, I'm just raising the question of, you know, I think he's completely right about. So what follows from that passage is he says, you know, we might pass over such a rule as commonplace now, the idea that you would let anyone into your organization. But it is one of the hinges upon which history turns. It signified the end to any notion of exclusiveness. So the in the same sense as sort of these radical religious groups are saying everyone's souls has the same value. There's sort of a leveling in a sense um, of hierarchy. Here, there's a notion that, you know, everyone, every man, the poorest he, as um, Foxley put it, um, quoting, was it a leveler or was it Wooden Stanley? It was a leveler, um, yeah. It was a leveler, yeah. Um, the same thing applies here, that, you know, it costs a penny a subscription and these they're meeting in taverns and bars. Um, so in that sense, I think Thompson's quite right to emphasize it. I just can't help, you know, from the present moment, think about what does this actually what were these people's views on empire? I, it's, it, he doesn't discuss that question really at all. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's an important question. We should get into it more over the course of the whole podcast because it's been one of the main lines of criticism of Thompson, right? That he's a, a historian of working class movements in the core of the most powerful empire, you know, in the modern world up to this point and doesn't really engage with that. Um, that said, I do think that there is an interesting uh, discussion here of the role of London in particular. Um, So he says, actually, the London Corresponding Society has often been claimed as the first definitely working class political organization formed in Britain, this is page 20. Pedantry apart, 
the Sheffield, Derby, and Manchester societies were formed before the Society in London. Mm -hmm. uh, this judgment requires definition. So actually, it's not the first one. Um, right, these industrial towns in the north uh, had ones earlier, but Thompson is interested in London because uh, at the end of this page and the beginning of the next one, he says, here, I'll, I'll read a little more from him here. Um, at one end, the London Correspondent, London Corresponding Society reached out to the coffee houses, taverns, and dissenting churches off Piccadilly, Fleet Street, and the Strand, where the self-educated journeyman might rub shoulders with the printer, the shopkeeper, the engraver, or the young attorney. At the other end, to the east and south of the river, it touched those older working-class communities, the waterside workers of Wapping, the silk weavers of Spitalfields, the old dissenting stronghold of Southwark. For 200 years, radical London has always been more heterogeneous and fluid in its social and occupational definition than the Midlands or Northern centers grouped around two or three staple industries. Popular movements in London have often lacked the coherence and stamina, which results from the involvement of an entire community in common occupational and social tensions. On the other hand, they have generally been more subject to intellectual and ideal motivations. A propaganda of ideas has had a larger audience than in the North. London radicalism early acquired a greater sophistication from the need to knit diverse agitations into a common movement. Uh, new theories, new arguments have generally first affected a junction with the popular movement in London, then traveled outward. And I think this is interesting because uh, one quality that London had going back, you know, over a century from this point um, was as a center of world empire, it was an enormous place of global circulation. Uh, one of the classic books of, that is kind of written in the Thomsonian tradition and inspired by Thomson is a book called The Many-Headed Hydra by Marcus Redeker and Peter Leinbaugh, which is basically trying to show that the phenomenon that Thomson identifies in this book actually occurs all around the Atlantic uh, in New York and um, on ships everywhere and uh, you know, and every, basically everywhere where common people are being conscripted into the process of uh, serving the British Empire in one way or another. And one can imagine, although Thompson doesn't tease it out, that some of that phenomenon is happening even here in the London Corresponding Society, right? That there are sailors who, uh, you know, have been all over the Atlantic and have been radicalized in the kind of imperial context and are now back... Um, and circulating those ideas and so on. So I think Thompson uh, both doesn't see that and at the same time, and is in some ways has blindnesses to that. Um, and at the same time, you can kind of reconstruct it from within the gaps in Thompson in some way. Sure. I mean, I assumed that was sort of implied or at least between the lines in the something you read where it says, there, you know, London radicalism had early acquired a greater sophistication from the need to to knit diverse energy agitations into a common movement. So there's actually a sense of how to bridge the gap between different communities that implies, you know, that there were such gaps in the first place, right? So Right, and, and that it could open beyond even just England. Yes, yeah. It's also interesting just on that, that there are a couple of times when the question of how to relate to the American Revolution comes up as both in this chapter and, and in chapter two comes up as a kind of distinction Thompson draws between the left and the right, actually. Yeah. What does he say about that? Uh, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have a huge presence in the book, but of course, Tom Paine is this central figure. Right. Um, you know, Tom Paine, who of course is, you know, among like our founding fathers or whatever. <laughs> um, but, wow, you, you sound know, so Payne... patriotic, Gabe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> but Paine's The Rights of Man um, is, you know, it's, I mean, Thompson considers it essentially the kind of founding book of the British working class movement. One of two uh, founding books. The other one. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. We'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> um, and, you know, in um, describing the repression of the London Corresponding Society, uh, which is very intense, you know, again, in contrast to the idea of Britain as this kind of perennially liberal and open society, um, right? Thompson tells the story of how this organization is just, you know, brutally put down. Mm -hmm. You know, people are charged with like high treason and so on, um, or they, there's an attempt to do that. Um, and Tom, Tom Paine's Rights of Man was banned. I mean, what's interesting is that I don't know if it's chapter one or two, but he sort of talks about how and this is an example of how Thompson sort of his method and how he sees history and ideas being mediated, you know, by experience and subjectivity. He talks about how Thomas Paine never really was a radical in the English context. But as soon as he's transplanted to the United States into that context and the both the American Revolution, but also the French Revolution, all of a sudden he writes common sense and the rights of man. Um, and so I think to me, his emphasis on pain here is like representative of what he's trying to do. Right. Which is he's making an argument that it's not that actually human agency does come in, but it's not on its own. There's, you know, the seeds of radicalism may lay dormant in some of these dissenting sects, um, but they will remain dormant until the context changes and then they can be awakened. Yeah, he's very insistent. Right. And I think the core of chapter one is this insistence that uh, the revolutionary challenge embodied in the principles of the London Corresponding Society had been expressed before, right? That it is a very clear continuation of the leveler idea. Mm -hmm. um, and on page 22 and 23, he's saying this very clearly. And, you know, he says that a new notion of democracy like this was bound to lead on to the charge of high treason, right? Exactly because it threatened to reawaken uh, this very real revolutionary tradition. Mm -hmm. um, on, at the bottom of page 23, he says, to read the controversies between reformers and authority and between different reforming groups in the 1790s is to see the Putney debates come to life once again. The poorest he in England, the man with a birthright, becomes the rights of man. While the agitation of unlimited members was seen by Burke, that's Edmund Burke, as the threat of the swinish multitude. The great semi-official agency for the intimidation of reformers was called the Association for Protecting Liberty and Property Against Republicans and Levelers. So he says, it is the old debate continued. Um, and the fear is that, as one, uh, as one kind of more moderate figure puts it, Mr. Payne will be able to rouse up the lower classes. Right. I mean, the great there's a great quote on 24 right after what you were quoting from. It's the old debate continued. The same aspirations, fears and tensions are there, but they arise in a new context with new language and arguments and a changed balance of forces. Love the phrase balance of forces. Um, we have to try to understand both things, the continuing traditions and the context that has changed. So this is one of those moments where Thompson sort of ex starts explaining his own methodology here. Yeah, I mean, let's move into chapter two, maybe here, since we mm -hmm. kind of worked through chapter one. But it does, on that on that point, it is just amazing to me. Um, I just reading, especially chapter two, uh, I felt like it was such a perfect example of how to think dialectically about history, right? How a set of events can have two opposite meanings simultaneously and how historical events can kind of play out that opposition, which, you know, it's just not a lot of history. It's so hard to do deftly. And it's amazing to see how 
skillful Thompson is at it. I found, um, I'll just say about chapter two, uh, I am not a Christian person by any stretch. Um, but I found this chapter really moving. Um, and I remember not liking it when I read it 10 years ago and not really getting it. Uh, but this time around, I felt like um, the kind of odyssey of, you know, dissenting religion over a period of 150 years that's being compressed here into 20 pages. Uh, I, I feel like there's a, such a deep lesson in it about, you know, how losers never lose and winners never win in, in the history of social struggle. Yeah, it's funny. I, so during this week, I was also reading Democracy Against Capitalism by Ellen Wood, um, which is in large part a defense of E.P. Thompson, um, at least a couple of the chapters in it. Um, and this was exactly to read that in concert with this was exactly right. I mean, she was talking about this sort of rejection of um, a binary between base and superstructure and how in Thompson you're constantly recovering the sort of contingent possibilities that might lay dormant and then come out in the right context. And I think it's just like an incredibly for me as a just analyzing politics in the present it's a very useful lesson um, that I, I understand why Ellen Wood is like, you know, sort of defending Thompson against, you know, the likes of Althusser at this point. Yeah, and just the idea that, um, you know, past defeats are always preserved, right, and never go away. Uh, never forget that your ancestors killed a king. Yeah. I mean, right. that, that for me was the highlight of the reading for this week by far. Let's read that passage. Sure. Liberty of conscience was the one great value which the common people had preserved from the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth being, you know, the revolutionary period. Mm -hmm. The countryside was ruled by the gentry, the towns by corrupt corporations, the nation by the corruptest corporation of all. But the chapel, the tavern, and the home were their own. In the unsteepled places of worship, there was room for a free intellectual life and for democratic experiments with members unlimited. Against the background of London dissent, with its fringe of deists and earnest mystics, William Blake seems no longer the cranky, untutored genius that he must seem to those who know only the genteel culture of the time. On the contrary, he is the original yet authentic voice of a long popular tradition. If some of the London Jacobins were strangely unperturbed by the execution of Louis and Marie Antoinette, it was because they remembered that their own forebears had once executed a king. Yeah, beautiful. That's amazing. I mean, um, you know, I do think, like, let's just try to unpack some of the kind of Christian stuff in here. Um, okay, we can try. Yeah, well, I so the first kind of quote that I noted from, from this chapter is on page 29, um, where Thompson says, when the millennial hopes for a rule of the saints were dashed to the ground, meaning the failure of the, or the fa failure of the radical revolution, there followed a sharp dissociation between the temporal and spiritual aspirations of the poor man's puritanism. Um, and he spends a lot of the chapter exploring this idea, including, I thought, a very helpful quote from Gerard Winstanley, the digger, who we talked about with Rachel before, uh, and that kind of provides a master metaphor in some way for the whole chapter. Then the uh, one on the next page, The one right? on the next page. Yeah, you want to read that? Yeah, yeah, sure. I'll read it. Um, so, and he introduces it. Gerard Winstanley, the digger, helps us to understand the movement of feeling, turning away from the kingdom without to the kingdom within. The quote is, the living soul and the creating spirit are not one, but divided. The one looking after a kingdom without him, the other drawing him to look and wait for a kingdom within him, which moth and rust doth not corrupt and thieves cannot break through and steal. This is a kingdom that will abide. The outward kingdom must be taken from you. 
And he follows this by saying an understanding of this withdrawal. And then he puts in italics and of what was preserved despite the withdrawal is crucial to an understanding of the 18th century and of a continuing element in later working class politics. So what is his point there? What was preserved in the withdrawal? Well, I think the key point of this of this uh, chapter is the idea of freedom of conscience. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And that as Puritanism and it's kind of more radical uh, you know, fringes are, are defeated, um, even as they de- consciously become depoliticized in a variety of ways, right? And I mean, this is when Stanley saying, okay, forget all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, nonetheless, even in the act of saying, let's forget all that stuff, is a sense that um, one can contain in oneself a world shielded, right, from the corruption of, of the material world. Um, and that corresponds to the idea and also the legal reality and increasingly over the course of the 18th century, the social reality of freedom of conscience religiously and potentially more than religiously, right? So that people um, get to make their own decisions about how they associate religiously and socially. And those decisions can bear a kind of critique of the social order even if it's one that is disavowed by those people. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the sense that there is something to protect yourself from and to hold within yourself in it is, as I think Thompson says at one point, is itself sort of this radical kernel. On the same page also, I mean, what he's talking about, he says here, um, there's the positive energy of Puritanism and then the self-preserving retreat of dissent. So political quietism with a kind of slumbering radicalism, which he says might in any more hopeful context break into fire once more. And this then leads him to talk about Tom Paine a little bit in the different contexts he's writing in. Yeah, but exactly what you're saying here um, in terms of the idea of something to preserve yourself against. I mean, throughout the, this chapter, I think the whole book and even his other writing, he uses the phrase old corruption. Mm-hmm. Um, to kind of name, uh, you know, the kind of order that the Puritans are retreating from here. And uh, on page 46, he has this, I think, helpful little sequence where he says, uh, for years, the tension might seem to be contained, but when it did break out, it was sometimes charged with a moral passion where the old Puritan god of battles raised his banners once again, which secular leaders could rarely touch. So long as Satan remained undefined and of no fixed class abode, Methodism condemned working people to a kind of moral civil war between the chapel and the pub, the wicked and redeemed, the lost and the saved. And then he tells the story of Cobbett, who's a radical, who taught the weavers of upland Lancashire to look for Satan, not in the alehouses of a rival village, but in the thing and old corruption. It was such a sweet, swift identification of Apollyon, meaning Satan, we'll get into that, um, <laughs> With Lord Liverpool and Oliver the Spy, which led the Weavers to uh, the confrontation of Peterloo. So I think you're right exactly that there there's something uh, antagonistic still Im- embedded in in uh, this kind of retreat, and that's that's the core of this idea. Mm-hmm. And he he spells this out with his discussion of Methodism, um, and. That's something that I think is really interesting because he so he talks about John Wesley, this character who's sort of this he's a reactionary guy. He's a Tory. He's ultra authoritarian and disciplinarian. Um, and yet he also in his his sort of um, encouragement of these Methodist societies starts a kernel of 
radical democratic egalitarian organizing that then can be used in the future right yeah um there are these amazing lines in here about about the kind of two sides of this. so first of all you know apparently there's widespread belief unbeknownst to me outside this book um <laughs> that methodism prevented the methodist uh even so the methodists led an evangelical revival in the late 18th mm -hmm. century right that evangelical religion had not gone away but had kind of diminished in its force since the days of the radical, you know, 17th century. Um, and they're, the poor are kind of waiting for uh, some church to, to speak to them. And John Wesley mm -hmm. is kind of the first to the punch. Um, right. I mean, he says he's the first who reaches Christ's poor. Yeah, exactly. In quotes, yeah. Um, and then he says, Methodism was conservative in many ways. At one level, the reactionary, indeed odiously subservient character of official Wesleyanism can be established without the least difficulty. And this is why some people have argued it prevented revolution, right? But it was profoundly marked by its origin. The poor man's descent of Bunyan, of Dan Taylor, we're going to get into those, and later, oh, the primitive Methodist was a religion of the poor. Orthodox Wesleyanism remained as it had commenced, a religion for the poor. But at another level, mm -hmm. we are familiar with the argument that Methodism was indirectly responsible for a growth in the self-confidence and capacity for organization of working people. And then there's these two amazing quotes on this that I'll, I'll read. One is from... 1820 about the Methodists. Um, perhaps the manner in which Methodism has familiarized the lower classes to the work of combining in associations, making rules for their own governance, raising funds, and communicating from one part of the kingdom to another may be reckoned among the incidental evils which have resulted from it. And then on page 43, he quotes a letter from the Duchess of Buckingham to the uh, Countess of Huntington. I thank your ladyship for the information concerning the Methodist preachers. Their doctrines are most repulsive and strongly tinctured with impertinence and disrespect toward their superiors in perpetually endeavoring to level all ranks and do away with all distinctions. It is monstrous to be told you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. It's an incredible quote. <laughs> to live at a time where the elite just said what they actually think of you. <laughs> I mean, I, I imagine I imagine letters like this are now text messages that do exist. I guess but, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's a great quote. So he's, you know, sort of, so I, at one point he says it's despite Wesleyanism um, that um, the sort of radical tradition for, of Methodist um, contributions to the working class movement form in spite of, not because of the Wesleyan conference. Um, and yet... In many ways, he's setting up exactly what to us today sounds like the makings of a political organization, right? You, you have a conference, you have national communications, you have subscriptions for cheap. Yeah. Um, and it, it has a root in a shared ideological experience and worldview. Uh, and this is, you know, the chapter has at its core um, and is titled after this reading of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Um, yeah, we should talk about that. Yeah. Uh, so I've never read Pilgrim's Progress, have you? Me neither, yeah. no. But it is, you know, I know it as like one of the kind of classics of early modern English literature, especially, you know, religious, you know, Protestant, whatever, um, alongside Paradise Lost and this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, Thompson names it as along with, as you said, along with um, Tom Paine as the rights of man as the kind of most important book for the working class in this period. So Pilgrim's Progress is the story of a man named Christian. Uh, making a journey from his home, which is the city of destruction, to the celestial city. And he encounters along the way uh, various kind of symbolic obstacles and distractions and trying to change his path or dissuade him 
the Lord of carnal delight, the Lord luxurious, the Lord desire of vainglory, old Lord lechery, sir having greedy, etc. Um, <laughs> but the kind of climactic encounter in the book is between Christian and the demon Apollyon. And uh, what, th what Thompson has to say about this is that um, Apollyon looks like a horrible monster. You know, he's a very kind of like dream of fantastical creature, but he's actually not an otherworldly creature. Uh, here I'm quoting from Thompson. Apollyon turns out to be very like the perplexed county magistrates who tried with alternating arguments and threats to make Bunyan promise to desist from field preaching. Uh, at first, Apollyon is subtle and not violent, and he even manages to recruit Christian's own companions to turn against him. Um, so here we see this way in which the book itself contains uh, this kind of dual character, right? Where the quest for heaven encounters these uh, spiritual antagonists that are very easily associated with, um, you know, antagonists of this world. Right. On 49, he says... He's talking, he's introducing um, some of the plot of Pilgrim's Progress, and he says, The extravagant Im imagery used by certain groups do not always reveal their objective motivations and effective assumptions. Um, and so it's really interesting that exactly your point of it's the seeming fantasticalism um, and the way he talks about this as well when it comes to Hart, Tom Hardy's trial, that there's this mix of incredibly sort of quotidian um organizational concern the concerns of magistrates getting in the way of your political association and yet it's often couched in this in the texture of the language of the times right so this incredibly otherworldly sort of like appeal to heaven and to celestial gods um that i found really interesting in that um again it's thompson doing his one god alex one god yeah. oh Sorry. okay 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 uh, i i am even less christian than you are uh in that i was raised with nothing um so this was all very uh a bit over it was a bit much um for me so i'm sorry if i have mistakes i've made um but yeah i just thought it was really interesting um the sort of like again the attention to the texture of the language that also without taking it at face value necessarily yeah, which is not to say that it's purely metaphorical, right? I mean, it, goes, right, like it's, right. it means the religious things that it means for these people, right? It, uh, and that religious meaning contains this kind of worldly meaning. Um, mm -hmm. I think, I don't know. I mean, I always, like, as a, for me, as a historian, as, you know, as a social historian, a historian of working class people in life, uh, I'm always getting asked, why do you never mention religion at all, right? It's because as a non-religious person, I, like, it's hard for me to inhabit Mm -hmm. um, the and it's a weakness I think in my work that I'm always trying to kind of work on. It's hard for me to inhabit uh, the world in which religion is something other than just kind of metaphor or you know delusion or something like this, right? And it's what I find so helpful about this. Or one of the things I find so helpful about this chapter, um, the way that religion carries all these worldly and political meanings, but it wouldn't be able to if people didn't actually think it, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. I mean, so the quote he says here is the imagery is itself evidence of powerful subjective motivations, fully as real as the objective, fully as effective as we see repeatedly in the history of Puritanism in their historical agency. It is the sign of how men felt and hoped, loved and hated and of how they preserved certain values in the very texture of their language, um, which I think he does a great job of actually showing. Yeah. 
And quite rightly, then, if your work doesn't include it, Gabe, then you're missing a whole part of the yeah, yeah, no, I know. structure. I mean, it's very true. It's a good criticism. <laughs> <laughs> so what else goes on in this chapter? Uh, well, there's the, the Methodists start to split is an interesting thing that happens. Um, mm -hmm. Over what? Well, over basically over authority in the church, it seems like. Um, mm -hmm. Which, you know, is I think very frequently, uh, you know, as we heard earlier in this episode, very frequently a kind of, uh, that is a site where political conflicts kind of actually play out is who, because the church is such a meaningful area of understanding how the world should be. Uh, who actually controls it winds up being a key political contest. There's kind of fraction, not not in a huge way. It's not like it splits in half, but there are kind of more radical sects that split off of the Methodists. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that's in part as people kind of take up what they see to be the kind of democratic possibility embedded in Methodism and then kind of see it through in ways that Wesley himself wouldn't want. So on page 35... Thompson tells the tale, the story of Dan Taylor uh, in a Yorkshire collier, that's coal miner, in the 1760s. Are you sure it's coal miner? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, who had worked in the pit from the age of five and who had been converted by the Methodists. And he looked around for a Baptist sect with, uh, with an evangelical temper. He could find nothing that suited. He built his own meeting house, digging the stone out of the moors above Hebden Bridge and carrying it on his own back. Then he walked down from the weaving township of Heptonstall, a Puritan stronghold during the Civil War, to Lincolnshire and Northamptonshire, making contact with restive Baptist groups, and finally forming, in 1770, the Baptist New Connection. Traveling in the next year's 25,000 miles and preaching 20,000 sermons, he is a man to be remembered by the side of Wesley and Whitefield, but he came from neither the particular nor the general Baptist societies. Spiritually, perhaps, he came, came from Bunyan's inheritance, but literally, he just came out of the ground. It's such a good good ending to that passage. <laughs> <laughs> but I so there. I mean, he's talking at different points of you know. So Wesley has this. He has sort of this mixed reality of he's encouraged these tendencies that he himself does not approve of. Right. So he's trying to crack down with the Wesleyan conferences, sort of his version versus say the New Connection. Um, and there's this incredible quote of sort of these more radical sects, what they're getting up to at certain points on page 45. Um, he's talking about um, the link between new connection again, which you just introduced And the I think it might be actually a different new connection, oh, but shit. anyway, I know it's fine. The idea, the idea that you're saying is, I just realized that as you were saying that, but okay. the idea that you're saying is still right. Well, so he's talking about new, this new connection and actual Jacobin organization. And he s starts talking about different, reading and debating clubs that were formed in different societies. And he says the people of a weave, this weaving village in Halifax at the Bradshaw chapel discussed in their class meetings, not only Killam's progress of Liberty, but also Payne's rights of man writing 40 years later, the historian of Halifax Methodism still could not restrain his abomination of quote, that detestable knot of scorpions who in the end captured the chapel, excluded the Orthodox circuit minister bought the site and continued it as a Jacobin chapel of their own. That's the name of the magazine. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So true. <laughs> but it's just, you want, I like want an entire chapter on that chapel. I want to read the book by the outraged uh, historian of Halifax Methodism, um, who is talking about this pit of scorpions um, and the way these radical ideas have launched and attached themselves to 
dissenters within Methodism. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't get much of a sense here. And I think it's because it's the conventional wisdom that, that Thompson is resisting of the ways that Methodism worked practically to kind of induce conservatism. Mm-hmm. I mean, he talks about it. He talks about it's, uh, you know, negative qualities ideologically. Um, but it seems like basically this is the thing that most people believed at the time he wrote this, which is why he doesn't really try that hard to establish that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the sense you get is of, you know, working class England in, in the 1760s, 70s, 80s, um, as just like seething with, you know, religious discontent that's kind of increasingly boiling up into um you know into a increasingly political form Mm -hmm. um i'd be curious about you know if if we have listeners who are who know more about (laughs) about methodism if you know the kind of counter-revolutionary quality of it um you know how how that manifested materially yeah that's something i certainly don't know enough about um and it's sort of taken as an assumption here yeah he does say it's especially after 1795 that it was most effective as a regressive force mm-hmm. um and then through the whole period of the industrial revolution there's this kind of tension between the authoritarian and democratic tendencies meanwhile there's towards the end of the chapter he's talking about there's the alternative view here that he's sort of given which is in the complexity in the complexity of competing sects and seceding chapels we have a forcing bed for the variants of 19th century working class culture and then he paints a picture of sorts. He says, here are the Unitarians or independents with a small but influential artisan following nurtured in a strenuous intellectual tradition. And he goes on and on for the whole page. There are the Sandemanians, among whom William Godwin's father was a minister, the Moravians with their communitarian heritage. And it just goes on and on. And so it's sort of this interesting response to what he seems to be, you know, what he's arguing against, which is the idea that there was no radical dissent. All of a sudden, here is a picture of different sects that all are sort of coming up together and creating an entire new culture of working class descent. Yeah. He, uh, later in the list that you, you stopped occur the, the Muggletonians who I don't really know anything about, except that Thompson himself has been described by others as, um, the Muggletonian Marxist. What does it mean? What does that mean? I mean, it's one of these sects, you know, I mean, I don't know the details of the belief system. <laughs> That's but, why um, I stopped reading. <laughs> I didn't want yeah. you to ask me who any of these sects were. <laughs> yeah. No, there's, uh, the Swedenborgians, who uh, they have a chapel actually near me. Oh yeah. So they they still exist in some form, but yeah. Interesting. But yeah, I think the other you know the other kind of phrase that struck me from this chapter was uh, in the discussion of Bunyan. Um, he quotes Weber and says the basic atmosphere of the book is one in which the afterlife was not only more important, but in many ways also more certain that all the interests of life in this world. And this reminds us that faith in a life to come served not only as a consolation to the poor, but also as some emotional compensation for present sufferings and grievances. It was possible not only to imagine the reward of the humble, but also to enjoy some revenge upon their oppressors by imagining the torments to come. Moreover, in stressing the positives in Bunyan's imagery, we have said little of the obvious negatives, the unction, the temporal submissiveness, the egocentric pursuit of personal salvation with which they are inseparably intermingled. And this ambivalence continues in the language of humble nonconformity far into the 19th century. The story seemed to be Bamf- seemed to Bamford to be, quote, mournfully soothing, like that of a light coming from an eclipsed sun, which feels like such a perfect metaphor mm-hmm. for the overall uh, 
point that Thompson is making here. Right. His entire project is about this sort of the eclipse sun and what you can recover yeah. from this. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Do you have anything left to say? I don't have anything left to say. Um, next week, we're going to be covering chapters three and four because chapter five is quite long. And so that'll be its own episode. Um, but so for next week, chapters three and four. Um, and thank you so much for listening and to Professor Rachel Foxley for um, being the first guest, which is never the most glorious guest spot to have. Um, so thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Casualties of History, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. Thanks to our producer, Sarah Hurd, and to Joey La Neve de Francesco for the music. You can find us at Blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com backslash J-A-C-O-B-I-N. Or at Patreon.com backslash Casualties of History. If you want to join in the conversation about the reading, sign up on Patreon and you'll be added to our Slack. <laughs>